Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Sophia Ramos. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with linguistics professor and department chair Misha Becker. In their conversation, Professor Becker discusses her recent research on language immersion schools in Spain's Basque country and how she plans to connect this study to efforts in revitalizing the Cherokee language. I feel sometimes people don't understand the breadth of linguistics as a mm-hmm. subject. Could mm-hmm. you just talk a little bit about that, about how you see linguistics in general and how you see linguistics in, in the case of this Cherokee project, serving a public or serving mm-hmm. a group of people? Linguistics is the scientific study of human language, and it encompasses a lot of different aspects of language. So we use language in our social interactions, and so part of linguistics is studying how language is used socially and how it has an impact on our social relationships. Um, And then there are other aspects of, of language that we look at, like how language is learned in children or in adults, and that's one of my areas of specialization. The way I see uh, linguistics having an impact on the world mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and our uh, the larger community is that as linguists, we understand a lot about how language is learned and how it's acquired, and this can help inform decisions about uh, language policies. It can help inform curricular decisions, and it can help parents and teachers understand more about their role really in how children learn and use language and how communities use language. So my um, my research with the Cherokee community in Western North Carolina has been centered around the question of how we can encourage children in particular to learn the the language and keep using the language and also how we can encourage adults to use the language and to learn it if they don't speak it. And maybe I should back up and say that Cherokee is a critically endangered language. Um, It is spoken by, we think, about 300 people or fewer. Um, Yeah, it's a really small number. Um, And that's about 1% to 2% of the local population. Because it is so critically endangered, what that means is that if people don't start using it on a regular basis, it's going to die out. So the current generation of of native speakers are they're old they're you know they're in their 60s or older and yeah. so we need a new generation of kids to to start learning the language and using it so how do you go about making that that push for the new generation or the you know the next generations to learn the language and speak the language right that, so that's sort of the the $64,000 question. So the Cherokee community has done some really, really great work towards this. So in 2005, they established uh, a Cherokee immersion school. It's called New Gadua Academy. And um, since 2005, they've been been teaching Cherokee language to children um, from toddlers and and even infants. They have an early, uh, early childhood program all the way up to sixth grade now. And this is a really important resource, and they've done a tremendous, um, a tremendous amount of work uh, and really good work in translating children's books. They've they've translated Charlotte's Web, for example, mm-hmm. and other kinds of books that are aimed at children. And so they've done really, really good work. But I think there's still a lot of competition from English, and everyone yeah. wants to make sure that their kids are educated in English and that they're going to be 
you know, competitive with other English speakers on the job market later or when they get to high school. And this is a, a very understandable concern, but we know that in other parts of the world, there have been minority languages where parents in these communities have actually opted to send their children to these immersion schools, and they really prefer for the school to be just in that language, in the minority language, and we've seen really great outcomes there. And so one community in particular that where we've seen this is the Basque country in Spain. Okay. So, um, and you were there recently. That's, um, that's right. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about that, that time in Spain and, and what you were researching there? Yeah. So um, last spring, I had a Pogue Fellowship, um, which allowed me to leave UNC for six months. And I went to northern Spain, to the Basque Country. And I lived in a city called Vitoria Gasteiz. And Vitoria is the capital of the Basque Country, mm-hmm. uh, or the, the, sorry, it's the capital of the Basque Autonomous Community. And what's interesting about Vitoria is that it's actually a very Spanish-speaking region. So oh, really? the city, yeah, so the yeah. city of Vitoria itself is basically Spanish speaking. When you walk around the city, you almost only hear Spanish. Mm. Um, and there have been studies of this. So there was a study done a few years back that actually measured, they measured, um, I think the name of the, of the study was something like um, language in the streets. And they went around and they recorded people's conversations, or they, it wasn't that they recorded the actual conversations, but they recorded what language the conversations were in. Okay. So they have numbers on how many casual conversations are in Basque or in Spanish in all mm-hmm. these different um, parts of the Basque uh, country. And in Vitoria, it was a really small percentage. Why do you think that is? Is that due to just that it's like a like governmental cultural center? And I don't know. No, I'm I just... think it's his, it's partly historical. Okay. So and it's geographic. So Vitoria is in the state of um, Alava, and Alava mm. is, so the Basque autonomous community consists of three regions. There's okay. Alava, Vizcaya, and Guipúzcoa. And Vizcaya and Guipúzcoa are up on the coast, so Vizcaya is where Bilbao is, for example. Yeah, Bilbao yeah. is a very well-known mm-hmm. city. It's where the the, um, the Guggenheim muse- Museum yeah, is. Yeah, that's so right. Guipúzcoa is also up on the coast, and that's where San Sebastián is also a pretty right. well-known city. And I think because those regions are further away from the rest of Spain, <laughs> Alava has always had more influence from the rest of Spain and from okay. Spanish. Nevertheless, schools in Vitoria are largely Basque immersion schools. Okay. And this is public schools as well as private schools. And so, and what we have seen over the past, um, you know, 20, 30 years is that parents are demanding more and more of these Basque immersion schools. And so the government is providing more and more Basque immersion schools. There's just more and more demand for it. So I was curious about why this is. Like, why would a Spanish-speaking parent send their kid to Basque immersion Mm -hmm. school? And Especially um, a language that's hyper-regionalized, like like the Basque country. Can you talk a little bit about that, just in case somebody doesn't know about sure. the Basque country, and just a brief, you know, about the that language and the history of that area? Yeah, absolutely. So the Basque language is really, really interesting from a linguistic perspective because it's what we call language isolate, and what that means is that it's not 
genetically related to any other living language spoken today. Um, so when we talk about genetic relationships between languages, what we we're talking about is um, sort of their, their lineage. So we can say that Spanish and Italian and French and Portuguese all stem in some way from Latin. So mm -hmm. they're the Romance languages. But Basque is not descended from Latin, mm -hmm. and it's not descended from German, and it's not actually part of the Indo-European language family. Um, and so it was spoken on the Iberian Peninsula before the Romans showed up mm -hmm. and gave everybody Latin. And, then <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's an ancient language that has just stuck around for millennia. Yeah. Um, and so it's not related to Spanish. It's really only spoken in that region, although it's also spoken in Idaho and Nevada because really? there is a large immigrant population of oh, Basques. Wow. In, yeah. What, what did you find when you were there and you were studying the, that process of those schools? Yeah, so it seemed like parents' rationale for or motivation for signing their children up for a, a Basque immersion school came from a couple of different sources. One was kind of a historical sense of, of connection and pride in the language. Mm -hmm. So Basque was prohibited during the Franco regime. So Franco was a dictator who ruled Spain from the 1930s to the 1970s. Right. And during his dictatorship, all languages other than Spanish were prohibited. So Galician was prohibited, Catalan, mm -hmm. and Basque as well. And so people were um, punished, actually, for speaking the language in public, and right. it could not be taught in schools. And after Franco died in 1975, there was a resurgence in, in, you know, wanting to teach the language and speak it openly. And now all signage in the Basque community is is by law bilingual in Basque okay. and Spanish and so yeah. forth. Yeah. And so people started these schools. And so there are a lot of parents today who don't speak Basque because their parents were afraid to speak it. Mm -hmm. um, and they, you know, they didn't want to speak it uh, even at home in some cases. And in some cases, it the banning of the language led to feelings of shame around the language. It was seen as a very, very low prestige language. And so right. some people chose not to speak it for that mm -hmm. reason. And so there are some parents today who feel like, I want to take this back. I want to give my yeah. children an opportunity to learn and speak the language of our ancestors. The other big motivation is jobs. And so um, it turns out that in the Basque Autonomous community, all civil servant jobs have a very, very strict language requirement. So civil servant jobs include things like firefighter, police officer, nurse, doctor, teacher. These are jobs that are pretty high paying jobs and they're very secure. And yeah. so they're very desirable. And so a lot of parents want their children to have a good shot at getting a job like this. And because of the language requirement, and it's actually a, it's a very strict requirement. Um, so you have to pass the Basque language test at the C1 level, and that's like this um, international oh, okay. means yeah. of, of, of gauging language proficiency, and it's a very advanced level. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, the language test for these jobs has a 50% failure rate. Wow. Right, so parents are thinking, I want yeah. my kid to get have the best shot at getting yeah. one of these jobs, and the best shot is basically having Basque in school from you know first grade up through the, uh, the end of high school. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of parents told me that they, they saw it as just a very practical decision and they wanted 
their children to have this kind of exposure. Now, I will say that there are other schools in the Basque um, country that are bilingual, so they offer both Basque and Spanish as the yeah. languages of, of instruction. And children who come out of those schools actually don't do as well. I mean, they can, they can understand Basque, they can sort of speak it, right. but they're not as proficient. Right. Okay. So how does this connect studying this, these Basque, this Basque region and these schools? So you bring that back to your Cherokee project and make those connections, or how does that process work? Yeah, so now that I'm back, what I'd really like to do is do a set of parallel interviews with people in the Cherokee community. So I, I don't think I remember to say this. When I was in the Basque Country, I okay. interviewed 20 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I interviewed nine teachers and 11 parents connected with primary schools in the Basque Country, um, specifically in Vitoria Gastes. And, um, and I interviewed them about their attitudes about the language and their for parents, that why they enrolled their children in the schools they did, um, and for teachers, what their experiences were with teaching in a bilingual setting and how they saw the both Basque and Spanish playing a role in their students' lives and um, future bro- job prospects and identity and all of these things. So I'd really like to come back to the Cherokee community and do some similar interviews with parents and teachers there. Um, and I think that that will help me understand if there are any barriers to children learning the language or using the language or people using the language in the community, what those barriers are and how can we get around them? How can we Mm -hmm. um, overcome those barriers? And I also think that just knowing about another community that is struggling with an endangered language, I mean, Basque is doing well, but it's still considered endangered. Knowing about how another community is encountering that situation and taking steps to strengthen the language can be beneficial. Um, yeah, especially when that particular language had a generation of the language being illegal. You know? That's right. I think that's <laughs> an, that's a really important parallel. I mean, you can you can say that there are so many differences between Basque and Cherokee, and right. there are. Yeah. But one really important parallel is that they both suffer from a generation gap. Mm, okay. So um, just like Basque was prohibited during the Franco uh, regime, Cherokee was prohibited, I mean, for longer than that, actually, because when the U.S. government instituted these boarding schools, that started in the 1800s. Oh, wow. And it continued in some regions until the 1950s. So it's a much longer period of time. And in those boarding schools, children were actually beaten. They were physically beaten for speaking their native language, and they were forced to only speak English. And so a lot of I mean, most Cherokee parents today in in the Kuala boundary—that's the the name that we that is used for the um, you could call it the reservation—but the region that is home to the Cherokee community in North Carolina, mm-hmm. many of them don't speak the language at all because their parents didn't speak it to yeah. them. Yeah, and there were those dire consequences for using the language. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have one more question, mm-hmm. and this is something we ask everyone we interview: What's a book that changed your life? A book that changed my life. I guess this book changed my life. I would say it's my it's my favorite book. It's a book called Ridley Walker. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No. It's by uh, Russell Hoban. Okay. And it is a fictional account um, of a society that is living in the future in England. Mm-hmm. And the premise of the of the book is that there had been a nuclear war in the 1990s, and okay. now they're like. I don't know, 
um, I don't remember how much time, thousands of years in the future or something like that. Mm. And the whole book, and they're a very primitive society, and the whole book is written in such a way that you have to sound out all the words, so it's not spelled like normal English. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> so I read it in high school, and I, I was just fascinated by this idea that about, you know, how language changed. I mean, this is not what the book was about. The book yeah, wasn't yeah, about yeah. language, but <laughs> my budding linguist mind was yeah. already going in that direction. So, yeah, I was interested in how, how languages change over time. Mm-hmm. And That's like, have you ever read... Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange. Yes. It's very similar like that. I remember picking that it's up not as, in college. I mean, right, it's not. It's but not you, as extreme. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have this kind of pseudo Russian type borrowing of language sure. and slang that you had to really get used to to yeah. kind of get through the book. So the yeah. first few chapters are kind of a, <laughs> <laughs> it went a lot slower. It's a culture shock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah. So you said you read that in high school? Yeah, I read it in high school, and then I've actually used um, passages from it in mm-hmm. my uh, when I teach language uh, introduction to uh, language. When we talk about historical linguistics and language change, I sometimes use passages from that book yeah. and have my students think about whether these language changes that the author is has made up, right. whether they're reasonable kinds mm-hmm. of changes given what they know about how languages do change. Yeah, what do they find? Well, they say that, you know, some of them seem reasonable and some of them also seem a bit far-fetched. I okay. mean, to be honest, you know, if you think about how different English is now from a thousand years ago, I mean, yeah. you can't understand yeah. the English of a thousand years ago. Right. And so if we think, you know, 2,000 years in the future, probably it would not be comprehensible. That's true. Right. Yeah. So it's probably... <laughs> He's got to make... <laughs> There's got to be some accessibility. <laughs> yeah, right. But you can't, right. If you wrote a book that was completely incomprehensible, no one would read it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. That's great. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.